0: If you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians is one of three letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He planted that church, of course, in Acts eighteen. He receives a letter then from Chloe's household regarding certain problems in the church, which he answers in First Corinthians. Uh, things go from bad to worse though, in Corinth and Paul attends Corinth in what he calls a painful meeting, where Paul seems as if he was sent scurrying away with his tail between his legs. The Corinthians despised Paul, he said he was a, a paper tiger, much better on paper than in person he 's kind of with small, bald, squinty eyes and knock knees, and uh, they weren 't very impressed with him, and they sent him packing and Paul then sends a severe letter back by the hand of Titus, which was effective in bringing them to repentance and Titus brings news of this repentance to paul and he writes second corinthians then this letter we're at the end now of an extended section where Paul is talking about the new the, the new ministry of reconciliation's that been granted to him it's not a fading administration like the glory and on um uh Moses' face, but it's it's an eternal glory um, through Christ. And that Paul says, you shouldn't be surprised that I'm so unimpressive because God works through weak things. Uh, Christ Himself did His greatest work at His moment of greatest weakness. In the darkness, as He died, He reconciled the world to God. And so, Paul uses weak things and weak people to um, do his best work, and contrary to the super-apostles who have come into Corinth, these self-made apostles who are so full of themselves, so impressive orators and so forth, and Paul says he puts himself um, up against them. And he's now bringing this ministry of reconciliation to a um, conclusion, saying in these words, essentially, live like reconciled people to God. Stop halting between two opinions, whether you should follow the world or follow Christ, give yourself to Christ and follow him alone. If you would then please listen carefully to the Word of God. Second Corinthians six fourteen we we'll read down to the first verse of chapter seven. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial—that's a word for the devil, or the worthless spirit, literally—or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement is the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God." Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of God endures forever. When I was a lad, my mother used to call me uh, manana tomorrow. And the reason she called me that was because I had this awful habit of putting off until tomorrow what I really ought to have done today. So mum would ask me, Have you done your homework yet, Neil? I'll do it later, mum. Or have you cut the grass yet, son? I'll do it tomorrow. And um, have you started that term paper yet, son? Uh, tomorrow, and Mum would always tell me, you know, well, Neil, the thing about tomorrow is tomorrow never comes. I think there's a country-western song about that somewhere. But anyway, tomorrow never comes because even when it gets to midnight, tomorrow suddenly becomes today, and tomorrow always remains at least twenty-four hours in the future, and, which is a great thing. Um, it allows you to, you know, um, avoid untold toil in the moment. Which is remarkably effective when you're a teenager. Not so much as you get through life, but nonetheless, Mum would say, But Neil, it's the early bird that gets the worm. And I'd return something like, Yes, Mum, but it's always the second mouse that gets the cheese. <laughs> yeah, think about it. So, <laughs> we have mice in our garage, and that, that uh, metaphor is remarkably apt. Um, one of them managed to escape the trap that sprung, but he's dead. I know that because I can smell him. I just can't find him. But he, it, it, the, the trap was effective. Um, right, where was I? Back to where we were. So, procrastination, right? So, procrastination is remarkably effective. But it's important to stop and ask, well, why do we procrastinate? Because the experts say that about 60 to 70 percent of Americans do which means most of you do as well. And the reason, there are many reasons why we procrastinate, and the obvious one, of course, is that we're lazy. I love the sound of procrastination. It makes my laziness sound classy. But there are often deeper reasons, and with me, actually, it's my, my love of, but failure to produce perfection, right? Um, I'm surrounded by so many tasks that I should do. Which one did, should I do first? And so I get caught in this decisive decision matrix um, that beavers wonder at and um, otters know too well. What do I do first? And I started this one, but this one looks even more fun. Maybe I'll start it as well. And then there's also the thought of I want to do something perfectly, right? And so, I can't deal with all of the imperfection along the way, like writing an essay. I, want to, I don't want to start writing the essay or a book until it's perfectly in my mind, so I don't waste time with imperfection, which, of course, means you never start, because the only way you get to the end of a book is to begin writing, most of which is trash, and then you sift the wheat from the um, the, the chaff, and so forth, and so on. But it occurred to me, there can be a similar dynamic in the Christian life, that that often we know we ought to be perfect, but we're not. Our lives are a mess. My life's a mess, and your life's a mess too. Um, Even if it looks too good to be true on the outside, it really is too good to be true, because it's not that case. Our life is always, to some extent, a mess— and often a lot more than we care to admit and so christians often kind of oscillate between trying harder i'm going to be a better husband a better father a better you know doctor plumber whatever housewife you know i'm going to be better i'm going to be better i'm going to try harder and that that doesn't work for very long because the harder we try the worse it gets right and um it's like our government. Um, and you just think, oh. And then we'll oscillate from being really hard-worked to going to kind of laying back on the lazy boy and saying, grace, you know. Where grace abo- sin abounds, grace is much more abounded. We lay there for a while, and then our conscience begins to prod us. You know, grace doesn't authorize your sin. Get, few, get up off your backside and do something, and you kind of oscillate back again from kind of grace to law and law to grace and so forth and so on. And I was thinking about that a lot this week, and it struck me. I was was in correspondence with a friend, and we changed some of the names in this letter to kind of hide their identity um, for reasons that will become clear when I read it. But we were talking about um, preaching and how difficult it is to preach law and grace and to kind of get the balance. And they made this wonderful um, assessment where they said, basically, the key thing is to remember the person. We can, we can depersonalize law and grace, that we obey the law and forget the person of Christ behind it and enabling us. And we can think of grace just as God having an indulgent, grandfatherly attitude towards our sin and forget the cost of grace and the reality of grace, which is always God's riches at Christ's expense, right? That's what they said. I'm going to read this. It's, 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 I think it's worth listening to. When grace is preached, we cannot forget the person We must make much of Christ who fulfilled the law on our behalf. When the law is preached, we cannot forget the person. and must make much of Christ who died on our behalf to make us sons and daughters of God. By nature, we love law. Just give us a list we we can judge ourselves by. Any list, but not God's list, of course. If much is not made of Christ, the tendency to do this lists of obey this and do this, right? That the tendency to do this with bullet points in a sermon is off the charts. We all bring a worshiping heart with us to church. We by nature want to know where we fall on the bell curve. When I come to church, having overindulged on Sunday night… Having said horrible things to Diana or about someone else, or manipulated someone for my gain, or spoke or wished evil on someone, and grace is preached without the person, it becomes cheap and ineffective. This is what happened with sonship. If the law is preached without the person, I am crushed and will either just determine to try harder or just give up in despair. But if the person is preached, I see a crushed Savior who lived the life I cannot live, died for all my lawlessness, and bids me in my brokenness, weary and heavy laden, to come to him and rest. I love him more. The cross grows bigger as I return to him again and again with my sin. Or say I come to church and all my kids behave— I've had a streak of regular exercise, even lost a few pounds, kept drinking under control, took a meal to a sick neighbor. All in all, I've kept my nose clean, an A on the bell curve. When grace is preached without the person, I am not confronted with my pride and self-righteousness. If the law is preached without the person, I give myself a pass that day, and on the bell curve, I sit in the catbird seat and hope all the slackers around me have paid attention." But if the person is preached, if Christ is preached, my bell curve gets exposed as another Savior, an idol. I myself sit in the seat of the slacker and have failed to love God and love the slackers around me as Christ did. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. In both scenarios, I have exchanged the law for a bell curve. They've added to the gospel. Both positions of the heart have to be confronted and both call to repentance the best diagnostic for the worshiping heart is to look at the condition of your relationships in this context of real life situations and before the god who sees ask if there's any joy joy is always harder to detect in happy circumstances but the lack of it is a dead giveaway in the difficult ones in the fight of faith And one of the reasons I think we procrastinate in our spiritual growth, we we know we should be better and do more, is we kind of oscillate from law to grace, absent the person of Christ. We try and do harder and better. When we do, we think, I'm doing really well. When we don't, we're crushed in despair. And then when we go to grace, we think of grace in in an indulgent way, as if God doesn't care about our sin. But when we come to grace through Christ… And Christ, through the grace, brings us to the Father. We realize that grace cost Him everything, took Him from riches to poverty, from heaven to hell, from His perfect righteousness to being lost in the darkness, clothed and marinated in my sin. And in that sense, grace doesn't encourage me to stay in the lazy boy, but it motivates me to run with endurance the race set before us. And so, perhaps this morning you find yourself, as I often find myself, and actually do you find myself this morning, longing to be more, faster, better, stronger, to be all that I could be and should be for Christ, and yet find myself so often falling so far behind the bell curve on my best day, never mind my worst day. I want to come to you this morning and, and give you Paul's antidote to a Christian life that seems to fall so far short of what it should be and what it could be. And you find it there in chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. I want you to see three things. First of all, stand on the Father's promise— second, resolve to be fully pure, and third, aim at final perfection. How can you be all that you should be in the Christian life? How can you make meaningful strides in actually growing as a Christian? More loving, more joyful, more patient, more kind, more gentle, more faithful, more self- controlled, and so forth. How can you grow in those things? Stand on the promises, on the Father's promise, resolve to be fully pure, and aim at final perfection. Let's start together. First of all, how can you make progress in the Christian life and be what you could be? Stand on the Father's promise. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God." Since we have these promises, the actual verb have there is a present active verb. It's a continual. Since we are having these promises, it's not something you had in the past, like since you built the foundation of your house and now the house rests upon it, but that was a long time ago. No, it's something you, they're, they're your constant companions. They're your very own possession. They're like your wedding ring. Sometimes I take my wedding ring off and I'm working out because. I broke my last one, the real one. This is actually Catherine's grandfather's one because it was lifting and the the, the ring cracked, um, which was sad. I still have it in the house somewhere, but this is Catherine's grandfather's one. Um, But uh, I always take it off when I'm working out, and one time I forgot to put it back on again, and one of the old ladies in the church said, thought I'd had a fight with my wife and that I wasn't wearing my wedding ring. (laughs) As if I would do that in worship. Anyway, so... um, But uh, but no, that wasn't the case. Um, So... um, wedding ring, but it's always there, and if it's not on my finger, I kind of feel naked. It doesn't feel right. You know, it's my constant companion. And the promises of God are your very own possession, Christian. They're your constant companion. Since we are having at every moment, every second, every minute, every hour, every day, every week, every month, every year, they're your constant companion. The promises of God are yours, and nothing can take them away from you let us cleanse ourselves. We live out of the promises of God. The first step we ever make in meaningful growth as a Christian is back to the promises. It's not in the self-effort. It's back to the promises. Pop stars live out of their suitcases. Christians live out of their promises, God's promises. Now, what promises does God mean, Paul mean, and God? He's speaking through Paul. Um, You'll see there back in the previous verse. Um, chapter 6, verse uh, 16b. I, uh, for we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We're temples of the living God. God has dwelt in us, the living God, the, the pantocrator, Paul calls Him, the all-holding one. It's the word for almighty, but it's pantocrator, all holding, all grasping. He holds the whole world, every atom of the universe, like a strong man. Remember when you were a child, you pick up bricks. See how many bricks you can hold between your hands, and you get maybe to seven bricks. You can hold these seven bricks by the sheer force of friction and compression. Hold the bricks up, and you keep adding them out until you can no longer apply enough strength. Well, God is the pantocrator. He holds every atom in the cosmos every second of time every event of history, every being in existence, angels in heaven, demons in hell, every human being on the planet who exists now, whoever has existed, whoever will exist. God holds the whole warp and woof of human history and the boundless outreach of the expanse of space in existence by His hand because He is the Pantocrator, the all-holding one. He, um, the universe exists today, and this is the one who dwells. In you. He's the incarnate tabernacling God. The Word became flesh and tabernacled with us, John said. Jesus dwells in us, and the Father dwells in us through Jesus, and Jesus dwells in us by the Spirit, and so does the Father. And so we're inhabited by God. Therefore, because you are inhabited by God, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, that sounds conditional, and it is. Come out from among them, and I will welcome you. There's an if and a then clause. If you come out, then I will welcome you. I'll be a father to you. It's conditional because it is, because if you don't, he won't. And you might think, that sounds like works, right? Right? but it's not it's not that we come out from the world and god welcomes us it's as if god's waiting you know waiting still waiting still waiting come on and then if you come out he'll give you the grace of adoption That's the way legalism works. You do something first, and then God does something next. Don't forget, verse 16 comes before verse 17. God, we are already temples of God. God has already given us grace. And the ability to respond to grace is itself a gift of grace. God has invaded our heart. He's come in by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Pantocrator, for crying out loud, lives in our heart. The reason we're not dead souls and even want to listen to Him, Ephesians 2, is because God has invaded us like the beaches of Normandy. The Holy Spirit has come into our hearts. The Pantocrator Himself has come in and, like a hand coming into a glove. So this story of this penist learning to play Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto, which is just huge, it's a difficult piece. He was a, he was a college student, and um, he was wearing those fingerless gloves. Those fingerless gloves couldn't play the piano. They're just limp and insipid. But when his hands go into them, what a difference it makes. The reason you can come out from the world is because God himself has in- invaded your heart like a hand coming into a glove, suddenly then you're able. The response to grace is itself a gift of grace. You're not earning the Father's love by coming out of the world. You're responding to the Father's presence by doing what you ought to do. So, think of it like this. I heard a colleague in ministry say once he went to a a, um, Russian orphanage, And the thing about a a Russian orphanage is that they're very quiet places. You go into the nursery where the babies are, and they're silent. And I did some research yesterday, and I saw article after article after article that made this observation. Do you know why the babies are silent in the Russian nursery? Because crying doesn't make any difference. What's the point of crying if nobody listens when you do? And so, after weeks and weeks of crying day and night and having no one come to their aid, the infants learn to conserve their energy and lie at peace. But one author said, if you you stop in the silence— and listen in the silence. You can hear them scream. Now imagine you, the little toddler in such a, uh, such a nursery. Nobody ever plays with him. Nobody ever interacts with him. He's sitting in the corner by himself, playing with a couple of blocks with nails sticking out of them. And he's playing with the only toys he has. He's sitting there. And this American family come in, this warm American family, a father and his wife and their children. And they walk across to him and say, Come, come home with us, and you'll be our son. He's going to look up. And if he dares to believe that promise, he'll stand up and he'll walk. What, he would stay where he was. If he had been offered the opportunity of a home where there's a father who will love him and a mother who will love him, who will actually listen when he cries. But if he follows that man out of the nursery, he's not, act, he's not making himself the child of the man and woman. He's simply believing the promise and following them. And that's how salvation works. It's also how assurance works. How do you know you're a saved child of God? Because so often we look at ourselves and go, nope, don't see any evidence there at all, and it's pretty discouraging. And, and the devil has a field there with that. You call you you, a child of God, really? No. how do you know you're a child of God? Because you believe the promises of God and hold them. How do you know you believe the promises of God? Because you act on them. Since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves. Let us be done with all impurity. Let us make war against our sins. Let us reach to the full and final purity of the people of God. It's that wonderful section you remember in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18. If you turn there, actually, see if we can find it in the back of the it's always a risk if I can't find the Westminster Confession of Faith in a hymn book. There's the shorter catechism before that. Okay, so it's page, let's see, 18 is eight five seven eight five eight chapter 18, right? Now, paragraph 2. Essentially, this paragraph is the whole chapter speaking about assurance is possible. You can know you are a Christian, Notice the genius of the, of the writers of the divines. Paragraph 2, chapter 18, 858. This certainty that you are saved is not a bare, conjectural, and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope. It's not going, well, I hope I'm a Christian, because I just do, but it might not be. No, no. But an infallible assurance of faith, one that cannot lie to you and will not let you down. Founded upon what? The truth of the promises of salvation and the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made. Genius. God has given you promises, Christian. If you believe, you'll be saved. What are you believing? Then you're saved. If you come out from the world and be separate from the world, you're you're determined to repent and be done with sin. You fall back into it. But your life is one of repentance. That's a mark of grace. If that grace is in your life, you can be sure you're saved. Because God promises, repent and believe, and you will be saved. And, And you're not earning salvation by believing the promise or acting on the promise. You're just showing that you believe the one who made the promise is true, true enough to trust and true enough to, to obey and follow. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the, that's the promise. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate. And then 7 verse 1, and, and, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. It's the promises we are be- well beloved children of God. And you'll never find assurance if you think about how unfaithful you are. You find assurance to live the Christian life. Because you've got to have, have somewhere, like when you're playing tug of war, you've got to have a firm place for your feet if you're in muddy water or an oily road, you can't play mud. It doesn't matter how strong you are. A child's team could pull you off the battlefield because you've got nowhere to put your feet. And the Christian life, is, we put our feet in a solid place, not of our resolve, but upon God's promises. We don't trust our faithfulness because it's never there. We trust God's faithfulness, His promises. We trust Him because we trust Him. We follow Him as we follow Him, we come out from the world to the welcoming embrace of the Father, like the orphan of hell, leaving the orphanage in darkness and coming into the light of a child of heaven, beloved by the Father. So, when you try to grow as a Christian, the first thing you do is don't try to grow. The first thing you do is stand on the promises, the Father's promise, the Father who loves you, Who's always loved you, who's never existed without loving you. Secondly, resolve to be fully pure. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves, notice, from every defilement of body and spirit every defilement. Now, every defilement. We often have this attitude in the Christian life of an acceptable level of sin. It's like in Northern Ireland back in the 80s. The Northern Ireland minister, I think it was David Trimble on the cabinet of Britain, he made the statement in the middle of riots in Belfast, he, of, of an acceptable level of violence. And of course, he was ridiculed and gutted by the press because the acceptable level of violence is zero. But in his mind, you're going to have some violence, right? And we'll put up with that. As long as it's not too much. Well, often Christians have that attitude towards sin and uncleanness. An acceptable level of sin because nobody's perfect, right? Which A.W. Pink said nobody's perfect is the hypocrite's cushion. And the true Christian's greatest complaint, nobody's perfect, lying back. But the true Christian's greatest complaint, nobody's perfect. Oh, I wish I could be. Since standing on the promises of God, let us resolve to be fully pure. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body. Now, Paul, in this context, sees three principal areas of defilement. Um, First of all, uh, sexual perversion. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Body and spirit. And if you turn back to 1 Corinthians 6, you'll see Paul reminds the Corinthians that sexual immorality actually affects our body and our spirit. Now, um, it's a, a totally polluting sin, and really all sin is, but Paul highlights the specific nature of sexual immorality. So, the Puritans are the… the Corinthians were not Puritans. The Corinthians, to be… To be there was a verb, Corinthidsomai, to act like a Corinthian, and it wasn't good. It meant you were a complete pervert. Um, but the Corinthians, uh, there was a belief in, in ancient Greece that came to full persuasion about fifty years later, maybe even a hundred years later, when Paul writing Corinthians. But Um, it was there in seed form called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was this idea that the body doesn't really matter, because the God who made the universe was evil, and our bodies are evil. And salvation means escaping the body and getting into your spirit. And from that attitude came two kind of polar opposite false ideas of consequence. On the one hand, there were those people who said, the body doesn't matter. Get into your soul. Praying is much better than exercising right? It's the monkish mindset. Don't waste time with nice clothes and nice houses and nice cars. Poverty, chastity, and piety, that's the way. Get away from the body and focus on your prayer life, right? And this bunch of Gnostics would say, don't have sex with your wife. That's dirty because it's your body. Pray instead. Much better to pray. And then the other group of Gnostics, they had the same idea. The body is a waste of space. The Spirit's what matters. But the body to them, was like the peel of an orange, if the orange peel is dirty, you can still peel it and eat the, eat the fruit. The fruit is the spirit, and the, and the peel is the orange. And so what you do with the body doesn't really matter. So it's okay to have sex with a prostitute. And because the church was stupid, they fell into both sides. Sex is wrong and bad and dirty. The Roman Catholic Church, just do it with your lights out if, if you have to have children. Um, but it's, it's not good. And priests definitely don't do that. So, that's the Catholics. Don't have sex with your wife. And then the other side of, the, the, other side of the, the, the wall, you have those who are saying it's okay to have sex with a prostitute. And Paul writes to the Corinthians to say that sex is a special thing because if done wrongly, it defiles body and soul. It stains you to the core of who you are. Look at verse 13 in the middle. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised the Lord and will also raise up us up by His power. Our bodies matter. He's going to raise them up again, right? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh." But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. We're one with Christ in our spirits, but that union extends to our bodies, Paul says, to our flesh. And you can't check your union with Christ at the door and go on into the prostitute as a private person. You're taking your physical members that belong to Christ, worse, are part of Christ, when you have sex with a prostitute. Your genitals are Jesus'. Paul is saying. They're his, not yours. By the same logic that made your sin his sin and his righteousness your righteousness, your body becomes part of him, and you take Jesus with you into the brothel or into the one-night stand or the friend with benefits relationship, you're bringing her, him, into union with that person, boy or girl, not just yourself, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Which is exactly the theme of what Paul is addressing here in 2 Corinthians 6. And so, deep down you all know that. There's an article in Wall Street Times yesterday, Wall Street Journal, which I meant to… I should have actually cut and pasted. I forgot to But it talks about how hookup culture has damaged especially women, Um, but neither men nor women feel particularly good about themselves after casual sex or pornography. They feel deeply stained because they are. You can try and escape reality, but you'll find it's much harder to escape the consequences of trying to escape reality. And Paul says, let us cleanse ourselves. Let us give ourselves no part in this pornographic culture in Corinth. So, you've got spiritual, sexual perversion. Then secondly, another cause of defilement is social partnership, the defiling effect of close partnership in business, but especially in marriage with unbelievers. Um, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The word unequally yoked there, it's, it's, it goes back to the Old Testament and this command in Exodus, I think, or Leviticus, not to yoke animals of different species together like an ox and an ass, right? And because um, that's both stupid and ineffective. Because an ox and an ass yoked together, the ass won't fit in the ox's harness. And then they are different animals, different natures, different strengths, different inclinations, and they're going to pull in different directions. And your plow is going to go all over the place. And so Paul says, "'Do not be unequally yoked. Don't yoke yourself with one of the devil's asses, with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, with Satan?' what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And Paul is saying here, don't marry an unbeliever. And I want to tell you, young people, don't even think about dating them. The most important question to ask when you start dating someone is, how does this person endear Jesus Christ to me? An office bearer in a church I used to pastor. His wife died. And he fell in love with this woman who went to a, a local liberal Protestant church. And he got engaged to her. And he came to me for premarital counseling. And he said to me, We're talking, and that's too late. But coming to your pastor for advice at that stage is too late. But he came and we were talking, and. Um, I asked this lady, "What is the gospel?" And she said, "What do you mean, gospel?" And I said, "The gospel." She said, "You mean like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John?" And I said, "No, no. The gospel by which Jesus saves us." She goes, "No idea." And we had a long chat. We were in a restaurant at the time, and I, I looked at the, as a well-known, beloved restaurant in this town that I was pastoring in, and. I looked around and said, what happened?" I said, if this restaurant stopped serving food? I mean, they had pictures of food, they talked about food, but they stopped actually serving food. And she goes, people will stop coming. I said, yeah, people who were hungry stopped coming. And what concerns me, I said, is that you've been going to a church for 30 years and never heard the gospel, and it never seemed to bother you. So I spoke to this man privately afterwards. I said, You can't marry this woman. Not, there's no, she doesn't, doesn't have she says, her soul is as dead as a hammer. And he goes, But I love her. I'm marrying her. And he left our church to do it, to do it. But um if a deacon in a church can do that, anyone can make that stupid mistake. You start falling in love with somebody and You start thinking of all of the benefits in the relationship, how you you like being with them, and so forth and so on. And slowly but surely, you'll convince yourself that all the things that divide you, that are as big as God, don't really matter. You'll become deaf to the prayers of your parents, the, the prayers of your friends. You'll become deaf to the counsel of your pastor and your elders. And you'll get to a point when you don't care anymore, and if I had a dollar for every time someone came to me and said, after 20 years, I married an unbeliever and I didn't listen to my friends who warned me, I would be, I don't know, a millionaire now. Don't do it. It'll corrupt you and it'll be like hitching an ox and an ass together. You'll be pulling the, the cart in all the wrong directions all the time. You cannot marry somebody with whom you have absolute and fundamental disagreement. And the same is true for for, for for business partnerships. Now, don't forget, Paul doesn't mean we come out of… He says earlier on, I think, in 1 Corinthians, I'm not saying come out of the world because you're in the world, right? I'm not saying have no dealings with people, don't work alongside them, and so forth and so on. don't I mean unbelievers are going to come to church, all these things. But he's talking here about deep partnerships that affect, that that are going to pull you and your commitments away from Christ, toward Christ, a a business partnership, joining yourself at a deep level to an unbeliever, a marriage relationship, dating relationship. And you might say, well, it's just just a quick romance. Dating an unbeliever is a very, very poor strategy for not marrying one it becomes very hard to stop, even after, like, and the longer you go, even, like, two years in, I've been there before in the past, with, for your two years in, you think, it's a bit like a baby with a dirty diaper, you know, he's been in the nursery for um, an hour or so, and no one wants to change the diaper, because it's, like, there's, like, there, you know, um, it's just, this just not good, and so, and you get the child home, and the child does not want you to, change their diapers like that it, it may be stinky but it's warm and it's mine and they have no intention of having a change they'll fight you right and you can get like that in a relationship you're in there you've been there for 2 years and it's like oh it's not very good oh. but it's it's better than the alternative which is being lonely again Paul says don't do it you'll defile yourself and your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, touch no unclean thing. And he also means idolatry, going to these interfaith services in Corinth where food was shared and idols were worshipped. And Paul says, no. Are you committed to cleansing yourself from every uncleanness? Think right now, where are the areas in your life where there's an acceptable level of filth? I think it was in Poland. This young lad was up playing at a water dam, water purification dam and he fell in and was sucked into one of those holes and got lodged in a pipe that was feeding um, the the whole town's drinking water. And he died, of course, and he was there, but they couldn't get him out. So they tried pumping chlorine down to get rid of it, but that didn't work. And so this body was... Leaching into the town's drinking water. No one wanted to drink the water. How many drops of raw sewage or rotting flesh would you be happy in your drinking water? Why don't you have that same attitude in your souls? Why don't I? Why do we have an acceptable level of filth? Paul says, no, make no—put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the of flesh. Lord help us, and lastly, aim at final perfection. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and bring, and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Bringing holiness to completion—it's it's, it's the verb used to bring a plan from your mind through your hand into reality, right? building a house or a subdivision. You have a plan, and you've got to go out and work hard to make that plan into your reality. That's the picture. Bringing holiness to completion, full growth, maturity in the fear of God. That's the, the mindset. We, we reverent. Remember, the God He's speaking of here isn't some nasty, judgmental, vindictive, tyrannical God. He's your father who comes to dwell in your heart, who loves you, who walked into the orphanage when you had nothing but sin and eternity with the devil to look forward to. And God said, Come and be my child. What about my sin, Father? I'll take all of your sin and give it to my Son, Jesus, and He will carry it as your substitute up onto the cross, and there I will consume Him in my wrath and the curse you deserve. And I'll take all of His righteousness and give it to you and clothe you in it and love you forever, because I've always loved you from the foundation of the world. You're mine, and you're my child. And we fear Him not because He's so terrible, but because He's so tender— Remember, Calvin, the gist of true piety does not consist in a fear that would gladly flee the judgment of God, but rather in a true and pure zeal that embraces God altogether as Father, reveres Him truly as Lord, and embraces His justice and dreads to offend Him rather than to die. That's the fear that controls us. And we bring holiness to completion. We run like a sprinter to brass the tape without slowing down at the end. We keep going. A work that God began and a work that God will complete. I was reading this week in Paul Chip's wonderful little book, Do You Believe? Great title. And he says this, speaking of the final day, all of God's grace-adopted children will finally be like him. That flawed husband struggling with sexual sin will be like him. That young person fighting temptation at her university will be like him. That disgruntled businessman will be like him. That guy cursing at traffic will be like him. The disgruntled wife who is envious of what her friend has will be like him. The pastor who has lost his passion for ministry will be like him. The seminary student who has confused theological knowledge with spiritual maturity will be like him. That couple who have spent their way into deep life-altering debt will be like him. That person crippled by anxiety will be like him because all these people are true children of God. Their futures are bright. The seeming contradiction between who God has declared them to be and how they now live will be broken once and forever. The struggle will end, because they will finally be what justifying grace declared them to be, righteous. What a stunning hope to hold on to. It's hard to live in the middle with all of its struggle and disappointments. That's why it's important to hold on to the surety of our glorification. Live now amongst the flaws with future flawlessness in view. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, run with endurance. Keep your eyes fixed on the completed work. He who began a good work and you will bring it to completion. Now, lean in with Him and run toward that goal, making no room, cleansing yourself from every uncleanness, and pressing on toward the goal, resolving to be fully holy, to agree with God, to hate what God hates, to love what God loves, to pursue who God is, and to be done with sin. But the reasons why you and I so often make so little progress in Christian life is our attitude's very different. It's more like this, Don Carson said in his book on Ephesians, I'm sorry, Philippians. I would like to buy about $3 worth of the gospel, please. Not too much. Just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self denial, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad minded people, but I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected, or my giving too greatly enlarged? I would like about three dollars' worth of the gospel, please. Having just enough gospel, you might say, to get to heaven, but not enough gospel to make any, any meaningful difference in the way you live your life today, in the way you deal with every threat of defilement and every hope of final holiness and God is here saying, you're my children. My son is your brother. Embrace, stand on the promise. Resolve to be fully pure, and reach for final perfection. And you'll see yourself grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ our Savior. Amen and amen.